0: All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Yep, children dismissed. They were dismissing. (laughs) All right, so we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and if you've been with us um, for the first three chapters, you'll know that um, what Solomon has been dealing with is, I want to say he's been giving us some some non-often spoken truths. Right? It's, it's truths about life that we don't often hear or don't often speak about that much. Um, he's spoken about how success, work, riches, pleasure, wisdom, justice, all these things are somewhat useless or pointless or not being drawn to their fulfillment if life is limited to under the sun. And um, the honest conclusion that he comes to is the honest conclusion that everyone who has moved God to the fringes of their life, comes to. If you've pushed God out to the fringes or you've excluded Him altogether, essentially you come to the conclusion that what is the point of all of this if all of this just goes to the ground, becomes dust, and there is nothing for it. And that is a great wake-up call because it speaks to the realities of life under the sun and the perspective of someone who has no eternal lens. And so it has shined the light, I think, for us as Christians, as well to look at ourselves and to say, okay, but what things and what areas of my life have I perhaps moved God to the fringes? And by, by doing that, I've somehow made that aspect of life not given the purpose that it's supposed to have. We've, we've excluded the purpose that God gave by pushing Him to the side. And for the Christian, that should not be the case. It has also shown us that we as believers and that our existence is not limited to under the sun because it's not bound in the futility and the purposelessness of these temporary pursuits. Our life is not limited by the finitude and the purposelessness of these temporary pursuits. Through Christ, we have daily purpose. We have future hope for in him we have eternal life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have eternal life, and everything you do in this life is finite, it doesn't have eternal value. We have removed that impact of having eternal impact, and we don't want to do that. So, life has purpose because God is part of it. If you exclude God, life becomes vanity. And that is what Ecclesiastes is all about. So now in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the breakdown that I want to give is in verses 1 to 3, we read about a shocking return. So Solomon turns from something to something else, and it is quite a shocking return. Verses 4 to 6, he talks about a proper perspective for possessing. So the things that you possess, what is the proper perspective about that? Verses 7 to 12, he speaks about the need for friendship and companionship. And verses 13 to 16, he speaks about the fleeting nature of success, the fleeting nature of success. All these things are relevant. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is so relevant to our daily life. So let's have a look at that. Let's look at the first point, the shocking, the the shocking returned. In verse one, let's read together. It says, so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he that b- than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. That's why I say it's a, it's a shocking return. He's returning from chapters 3 verse 22. Where it says, Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? He's returning returning from this glimmer of hope, this purpose, this this God-given privilege of working and doing something productive and enjoying the fruit of your labor. That's where he's at at the end of chapter 3. That is your portion. That is the gift that God has given you. Enjoy it now because, as it says at the end of verse 22, no one is going to bring you back to enjoy that later. Enjoy the portion, enjoy the season that God has given you right now. It is a gift from God. So, But from that he turns, and it's almost like he turns with a slight hope a, a slight smile on his face and he turns and he turns and he looks this way and he sees the tears of the oppressed and that, that that smile on his face quickly fades as he looks at the reality of the life of those people around him he looks to see the oppression and the oppressed and you know some of the oppression that he sees is probably his fault he was a king And because he wanted to accumulate the wealth and the success and everything that we've seen in Ecclesiastes, he taxed his people and he had a heavy hand on them. And so he was one of the oppressors over the oppressed. And at the end of his life, he looks back at that and he says, I have all this wealth, I have all this success. And I look back at that and I say, I'm one of these that has caused this oppression. Now, why do people oppress? Because they're not happy with their portion. They're not happy. They're not thankful for what God has allowed them and given to them. And so because they're not happy with their oppression, they desire more. And so they become oppressors and they oppress people to get more of what they want. It stems from the, of verse 22 of chapter 3. They were willing to oppress someone else to get more for themselves. And that's where it speaks about in the middle of or the end of verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, And on the side of their oppressors there was power. There's an imbalance of power. There is injustice. Life is not fair. There the oppressed look at their life and they have no hope. They ask, How will I overcome Will the scales of this life, this imbalance, ever be tipped in my favor? Will there ever be final justice? But if all we have is under the sun, then the answer is no. And that's why he says verse 2 and verse 3. If all we have is this life under the sun, then the answer is no. There is no comforter. Injustice will persist and power will remain with the oppressor. That is life under the sun. And that is why he concludes, well, that's why he goes into verse 2 and verse 3, where he essentially says, I praise the dead more than those who are alive. Because at least they don't have to go through this. Right? right? right. It's, it's quite morbid, but it's, <laughs> it's real. Why is, he, why is he so drastic? Because to be born under the sun is to be plunged into a fallen and cursed world. Yeah. That is what it means to be born under the sun. Romans 8 says that creation is groaning and it seems that evil is running wild and and, and untamed, unchecked. We have this eternal longing. We looked at that in chapter 3, the world written in our heart. We have this eternal longing, but there is nothing in this world that will satisfy this eternal longing. That is the life under the sun and that's what what Solomon is pointing out. And if that is what life is, well, there's nothing that natural man can do to escape that. Nothing. So it's better just not to be than to go into this life, this cursed world, be oppressed and have no hope. Because there's no hope now and there's no hope in the future. That is why he said it's, it's better than not to exist. And I think to us as a church, we need to realize that many people are here. Many people are there where they have no hope. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 says that when we were without God... We were without hope, right? The very next verse says, but in Christ, right? We have been made one. We've been brought close. But the point is, without God equals without hope. And that is where many people are. And I think it's this practical atheism, right? Now, I say practical atheism. I don't just say atheism. I say, because you can, you can have this intellectual idea, yes, there is a God, but practically your life shows atheism right. the idea that there is god is not affecting the way you live and practical atheism i think is the the leading uh, the, the leading cause for increasing suicide and abortion rates in our culture yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. that is why suicide and abortion is so prevalent because what is what is life what does it really mean there is no god there is no hope you remove god and you remove the purpose of your existence. Now, many people, granted, so many people are right here where I said, right? But many people aren't. So why why don't all people live this way? And I think there's two reasons. The one is, some people are not thinking or seeing clearly. That's the one group. They're not thinking or seeing clearly what's really going on. And the other group is those who are saved. So those who are not thinking clearly or not seeing clearly, you remember in lesson one, or chapter one, I mentioned carrots and squirrels, right? The carrot, this dangling carrot that is hanging in front of you, that's always saying, just strive for more, just, just, just this next thing, or the squirrel, the distractions of life, the, this thing, the, that thing, the next thing, right? Many people are not seeing, um, seeing clearly because of all the distractions and the temptations. Yeah. They're chasing the next wind, of futility. They're running down the next dead-end road. And Satan is keeping people so busy and distracted that they cannot see their lives for what it is. Ultimately, purposeless, under the sun. They're running around so much. We are running around so much that we don't see what is really going on around us. What is the effect of this life? And the reason Satan is keeping people so distracted because it's often the discovery of this purposelessness that drives people to purpose and they find that in God. So if he can keep you distracted and if he can keep you so busy with this life, he doesn't have to worry about you finding God. And it's only at the end of your life where you realize, what, where Solomon is, what have I done? Now the second group who doesn't think this way is those who are saved, those who have been made new creatures, those who are Alive to God. Our lives have been translated from death and finitude, right? Into a connection to God, the source of all life and purpose. So automatically, just by that translation, you are no longer confined to this finite and death surrounding life. Christian, our outlook has to be different to that of the world. The question is, is yours different? It has to be. May I just mention very briefly that it speaks about comfort in verse 1, right? They have no comforter. And the oppressed having constant oppression and having finding no comfort. You know, in John chapter 14, John chapter 16, John speaks about the comforter has come. That in this life you will be hated. That in this life you will suffer persecution. But it is expedient for me that I return to the Father. Because when I return to the Father, Jesus says, I will send the comforter to you. And he will guide you into all truth. So, even if you are oppressed, in the true sense of that word, right? Not the virtue signaling, victim mentality oppression. Like, you are truly oppressed. Then God will send these comforters through the fact that you are saved to lead you into all truth. And you don't just have comfort in your day-to-day life as you walk with Him. You have comfort and hope in the future. Let's get into verses 4-6 to where it speaks about a proper perspective for possessing. Verse 4, it says, Again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Verse 4 speaks about a man who is driven by envy for what his neighbor has. He looks at what his neighbor has and he says, I want that. But not just does he want that, he is actually pained by the success of his neighbor. He's envious he, he sees someone being successful, his neighbor, and because of that, "Why is that not happening to me? Why don't I deserve that? That, that?" that envy that's in his heart drives him to be successful. That's what verse four is teaching us. So he covets and is dissatisfied with what he, has, with what he has. Perhaps he becomes an oppressor through his envy. And this is vanity. At the end of verse 4, it is futile. It is an empty pursuit. Now, you can be driven through envy, right? But what should our perspective be? Our perspective should be that of verse 6, where it says, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Take a few pages back. Have a look at Proverbs, sorry, Proverbs chapter 30. This is what our perspective should be a handful with quietness and in Proverbs chapter 30 verse verse 7 it says two things have i required of thee deny me them not before i die listen carefully remove far from me vanity and lies give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with food Convenient for me, my portion, lest I be full and deny thee. That's where Solomon is. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. In other words, be thankful for the portion that God has given you. That is what our perspective should be towards possessing. I want to skip verse 5 just briefly and just say something on verse 6 before we get to verse 5 because I think verse 5 makes sense in the context of verse 4 and verse 6. So contrary to the man in verse 4 who through envy is striving for success, um, the one in verse 6 has a proper perspective on possessing. Here is someone who is thankful, someone who is content with what he has not too much. He doesn't want two hands full. He doesn't want to be inundated with two hands full of stuff and and unable to do anything for anyone else, unable to make a difference because his hands are too full with stuff. Whereas the man with one hand full still has a free hand to help and to give and to minister. Where if both your hands are full... Right? The two hands full is pointing to the one in verse 4, who through envy, is this, this lust for success is being driven. So we rather want, we don't want to be inundated with stuff. We want to have a hand free. This perspective on possessing leads to quietness. It, 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 it leads to rest in your soul versus having two hands full and a vexed spirit. Right? That's, th- those, are, those are your options. You, see, you, see, you can have two hands full, sure, but then you have a vexed spirit. Or you can have quietness and rest knowing that you have what you need and the rest you leave up to God. Now that's important because the man in verse 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. You see verse 4, the man in verse 4 is the one with two hands full. The beginning of verse 6 is the man with one hand full. The man in verse 5 has got nothing in his hands. He's folded his hands together. You can't fold your hands together if you've got something in your hands. He's folded his hands together, and he eateth his own flesh. It speaks to the man who is just lazy. (laughs) This man who is perhaps jealous of both the success of the man in verse 4 and the quietness of soul in the man of verse 6. And he's jealous of both of them, but he's unwilling to do anything about it. So he folds his hands, and he sits, and he sits, and he wastes more time. Until he slowly becomes the reason for his own wasting away. That's his eating his own flesh. He is wasting away because he is jealous of two different groups and unwilling to do anything about his situation. Our perspective should not be verse 4 or 5, but rather to enjoy the portion that God has given us. And to let that dwell in our hearts with quietness and rest. Knowing that What we don't have, we don't need because God promised to supply all our need. And so we rest in that. Let's have a look at verse 7 down to 12. And this is speaking about the necessity for friendship. The necessity for friendship and companionship. So verse 7 says, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea... He hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end to all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor, and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, and a sore travail. Verse 9, two are better than one, because they have a good reward of their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, who shall stand with him? And the threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here I think in in these verses we see the necessity of friendship and companionship. And... um, I want to get into the two is better than one in verses 9 through 12. But let me just mention something about verse 8. This man, this lonely man, who's got no one to share his success with. Solomon does not give a reason as to why this man is lonely. Was it his choice? Did he push away the people in his life? Did he never have a brother or a child? We don't get the backstory to this. But perhaps, I think, the, the verse maybe points to the fact that he's pushed them away in his pursuit of wealth and, and success. Maybe it's the result of his choices. But regardless of the reason, it is a sore travail. <laughs> that means it's a, it's a grievous endeavor. It's, it's grieving to this man's soul. This is not the way God designed us. Right? In the very beginning, Genesis 2 verse 18, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. We should not walk this life alone. As much as the world often praises this man in, in, in verse 8, this one who has become financially successful, who has climbed this this corporate ladder, who, this business success, Solomon is actually pointing out that this man has drawn the short straw. You know... You, you know, drawing the straws, you having different lengths of straws and whoever's got the longest one goes first or whatever. It looks like the world's saying that this guy has got it made. But Solomon's saying he's drawn the short straw. And um, I think the reason for this is that he has forsaken both the temporal and eternal purpose. Right, what, what is, the, pur- what is the, the portion that God has given you? What is it that we should be enjoying temporarily in this life under the sun? It's knowing that God has allowed us to work and He has blessed us right, by giving us a reward for our labor and that we get to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Okay? Now, the fruit of your labor is being able to take care of family and friends. It's being able to share a memory and an experience with someone. It is being able to help a friend or spoil your spouse. It is being able to raise children, right? That is what the fruit is of your labor. You are able to do these things because of the fruit or the, the labor that you've done, and now you can have the fruit as a result of that. This man has robbed his own soul from both that temporal reward and the eternal one, Because he's not laying up treasure in heaven, so we're not—we're not even talking about the eternal ones. We're simply talking about the temporal ones, and he's drawn the short straw because he's excluded both of those rewards. He does not even get the full experience of life under the sun. Look at verse eight. It says there in the middle. It says, "So his eye is not satisfied. There's no end to his labor." Um, And then it says, Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is one of the traps of, of this lifestyle. It swallowed up this man's focus and attention to such an extent that he doesn't even ask the important questions. He is so absorbed in his work and in his wealth that he does not even ask himself, the important questions—the questions like, "Why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? And to what end?" Yeah. Those are important questions. As you go about life and you work and you do these things, you should ask, "Why am I doing this? Yeah. What is the purpose of all of this?" Right? But he says, "Neither, uh, neither," saith he, "for whom? Right. You often need a friend. <laughs> you often need a companion. You often need an outsider." to ask these questions. That is why two is better than one, in verses 9 to 12. Before we get into verses 9 to 12, have a look at Proverbs quickly, Proverbs 27. We often need a friend to help us see what we don't see, (laughs) because we are shut off to the outside perspective on our own lives. And so we sometimes need someone from the outside to say, why are you doing this? <laughs> what are you trying to achieve? That's why two is better than one. But let's have a look at um, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but, he that ki- but, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, sometimes a friend will say something that hurts you or uh, doesn't sit nice with you, but he means well. He wants you to think about the difficult questions. Verse 9 Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Hearty counsel. Verse 17 Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. We need friends. We need companions. We need to be part of something bigger than just ourselves. This man in verse 8 did not reach out beyond himself. He was, he was absorbed with his own story, with what he was doing. And he lost focus of everything else. We need friends. We need companions to help see, our, see us through these times where we get absorbed in our own lives. Verses 9 through 12. Um, <clears throat> I want to summarize it essentially by saying verses 9 through 12 speaks about friendship and community and companionship being God's model. Right? That's what God's model is. God is triune, which means He is not alone. He walked with Adam and Eve, which means He desired fellowship with them. He gave Adam and Eve, <laughs> which means that He instituted marriage and He wants the family to be part of what this life is all about. So God is not this every man for Himself um, type of model. He wants that friendship and companionship to be part of our lives. To not have that is to rob ourselves of God-given joy, purpose, and fulfillment. So, and then he goes in verses 9-12 to to give a few reasons for that. Now, verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Now, getting a reward for labor is normal, right? If you work, you should be paid for it that's just life but that's not what it says it says they have a good reward okay there is something different between working and getting paid than having a mutual goal shared between people whether it's one or two or three or four it doesn't matter but we're working at this together there's teamwork and then making a success of whatever that is, that brings a lot more joy and fulfillment by reaching that goal than if you just single-handedly did that and no one else really was a partaker of that. This is not exactly the same thing, but when I think about this, the amount of times, I don't know if this is a guy thing, but if you bump a glass off the, off the counter, right? Or if, you, if you, you throw a piece of paper behind your back and you get it into the bin and there's no one in the kitchen to see it, it's kind of... I can't believe no one saw that, right? Or you bump the glass and you catch it on your foot, or something. Like there's something about having someone else be like, "Whoa, I saw that," right? It's, it's sharing in that. There's there's something a lot different in that than just, "Oh, cool, I caught the glass." Now I'll have to tell the story, but oh, it's not the same, you know. So having someone to share in that, and it doesn't say it doesn't say in verse nine they will have more reward. It doesn't say they will be richer as a result of that, but they will have good reward, good, yeah. right? So there is just something special about having a friend, having a companion through whom you are going through in this life and having the joy of reaching something together compared to just doing it by yourself. Verse, uh, 10, it says, verse 10 to 12, it says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Verse 11, and if they lie together, then they have heat. Verse 12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. These are all true physically, but they definitely apply spiritually. Falling down, cooling down, being attacked. All these things are spiritual realities for all of us. And what Solomon is trying to say here is that your chances of not just spiritual survival... But I think spiritual success is greatly improved through companionship. Spiritual survival and spiritual success is greatly improved through companionship. The Christian life is not supposed to be every man for himself. It's not that final round of paintball. It's, It's where we work together. That is what the Christian life is about. So perhaps your lack of growth, your spiritual strength is because you have disconnected yourself from good and godly Christian fellowship. Many people cool down because they've taken themselves out of the fire, right? Many people fall in battle because they have no one to help them. We, we, we do this to ourselves by removing ourselves from good godly Christian fellowship, right? This should extend beyond your church, by the way. You can't just come to church and say, okay, I've done my fellowship. You need people with you in life, people you can phone, people you can talk to, um, people you can pray with, right? That—that that is, that is what this is all about. So we need to have that community. We need to have that good, godly friendship. Keep your place here. I just want to show you in um, Galatians, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 1. This is something you cannot do if you're walking the Christian life alone. Galatians six verse one says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, he which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You you cannot do this alone. <laughs> This verse implies having friendship, having companions. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about the body of Christ and how we are together and supposed to be perfected together. And, and then verse 16, Ephesians four sixteen, it says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together. and compact. You can't be joined together if you're one piece, right? Um, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase in the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Right? In, in, James, in James chapter 5, it speaks about confess your faults to one another and pray for one another. You cannot do this alone. <laughs> the Bible implies, even though it doesn't explicitly state it the whole time, it implies, it assumes that you know that you can't do this alone. You need fellowship. You need companions. You need friendship. And that is the point in verses 9 through 12. You are stronger together. You will be more successful together. When I read verses 9 through 12, I think about the good Samaritan. I wonder how much of what happened to him would have happened if he had a companion on the road. right? He fell, but there was no one to pick him up because he was alone on the road. It's only when a second person came that he survived, right? So he fell, he cooled down, he was attacked because he was alone. And that should not be the case for us. Um, Have a look at verse 12 just briefly. It says there at the end, it's sort of a twist on what's happening. He says, two better than one, two better than one, two better than one. Then at the end of verse 12, it says, and the threefold cord is not quickly broken. Where does the third person come from? I believe this is, um, he's saying that two is good, but three is better. (laughs) And um, the reason for that is, is because I think he's introducing God into every relationship. You see, friendship is good, but godly friendship is better. Marriage is good, but a godly marriage is better, right? Parents' relationship with their children is good, but if God is in that, it's better. And it's not quickly broken, And that's why Proverbs 3, verse 6 says that in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Right? In all your ways, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, whether it's bringing up children, whether it's whatever it is, it's better if God is a part of it. It is stronger if God is a part of it. So make God part of all of those relationships. Let's get into the last few verses, verses 13 down to 16. 16. And in this passage, or this portion, I think what he's saying is, he's speaking towards the fleeting nature of success. It says, verse 13, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king, who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, he's speaking to this poor and wise child, who out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. In other words, it's not not about your origin, right? It's not where you come from. Verse 15, I consider all the living that walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. Now, the second child is the, the heir, the one that follows after. Okay. So this one who follows, this, I think it's this poor and wise child in verse 13, out of prison, that one comes to reign, and he is that second child who reigns in the stead of this king who is old and foolish. And then it says in verse 16, there is no end of all the people. Even of all that were, that have been before them, they also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this, is, this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now before I summarize or look at these verses altogether, let me just point something out in verse 13, and that is that it is better to have immaterial success than to have material success. He is saying that it is better to be a young child and to be poor but wise than it is to be old and stubborn and foolish. It's not about how successful, he's a king, right? It's not about whether you're a king or not, it's about whether you're wise or not. It's about whether you're teachable or not. By the way, being teachable is wise, so those two things go together. It's worth stating because we often look to rich people for guidance. (laughs) Um, And often rich people think that they are wise by virtue of their riches. I'm not saying that rich people are foolish. I am not saying that poor people are wise. I'm saying that the two are not connected explicitly, right? And we often, the reason it's needful to say is because we often think that if I want good counsel, let me go to someone who is rich. And that's not necessarily always true. Now it is often true, but it's not always true. And so Solomon's point is that riches are not connected to wisdom and therefore we should rather pursue wisdom and understanding and rather let the results flow from making wise decisions. Don't pursue the riches. Don't be driven by envy. Don't see the king and think that he's wise just because he's a king. Pursue wisdom and understanding. And then, because remember, this, this, so this young man who was wise became the king. But it's not necessarily because he pursued kingship, but it's because he was wise. All right. So we just need to differentiate those Two things. Having said that, though, being wise is more expedient than being foolish, right? We saw that in chapter two. So, so be wise, but don't think that automatically wisdom is connected to riches. Now, to summarize verse 13 to 16, um, what he's saying is that status and popularity don't last, even if you have a great backstory. Right, this young man had a really good backstory. He is born in poverty. He's this young man. He, he for some reason, he is imprisoned. Right, I, I wonder if this, if, if, if um, Solomon is thinking about Joseph, potentially being this man who who ends up being the king in Egypt, but he was imprisoned at some stage. I don't know. But he, all he's saying is is that even if your backstory is amazing, how you've gone from rags to riches. It, it still doesn't change the fact that popularity and success is still very temporary. And the reason for that is, is because people are fickle. <laughs> people are just very easily displeased, and they're always searching for something new. Even if it's just a new story. Yeah. Wow, did you hear about this guy who did this? And then, okay, I've, been, I've heard that story. Now I want the to st- Like Even if it's a great story, people are constantly searching for something new. Um, everybody is is, is obsessed obsessed with their own story of how how I went from here to here. And and so we're all building our own story and we're so consumed by what people say and, wow, he really came from nothing or she really made a name for herself. And um, it's worth commending, I guess. It's worth commending if someone has such a story, but does it really change much? Will the next generation truly remember that? Verse 16 says that there is no end of all the people and even of all that have been before them, they also that come after shall not rejoice in him. They also won't rejoice in him. They will forget about this king who came from rags to riches. The next, generation will come, the next generation wants a new story. They don't want last generation story. And so he's saying even if you have a wow story, it really doesn't change much. We should be more focused on God's story than our own. Your story may make a slight temporal difference, but your story cannot fill the void in someone's heart. Your story is important, right? Because God is working through your life. But it should not take the place of God's story. The most that your story can do is make a temporal difference in someone's life. But it cannot result in generational change. It is not something that the next generation won't forget. But if we go about proclaiming the message of the good news of Jesus, it outlasts us and can result in eternal treasure in heaven. So we should be way more focused on God's story than our own story because we should know that our own story is very, very temporal. So let's remember the fleeting nature of worldly success and allow that to help shape our priorities. Concern ourselves with God and not ourselves. Amen. Let's all pray. God, thank you for this book. Um, Lord, thank you that you, um, you've you been teaching us so much from it. Lord, help us to have our priorities straight. Um, help us to have a proper perspective, Lord, um, on this life under the sun and... Um, Lord, help us to embrace the need that we have for friendship and for companionship and the need for people around us to help us succeed and to be strong in this Christian life. Lord, thank you that we we have all the tools at our disposal. Lord, please help us to be faithful and to use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.